Pages of Pim Better Podcast. Greetings, Voyagers. Welcome to the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. This is episode number 208. Back in early 2018, I found myself with a friend in the town of 29 Palms in California. We were on our way to Joshua Tree National Park. We were actually staying in the desert, which was an awesome experience. It's an episode way back, maybe in like the 40s of, uh, of this podcast where I talk about it. But the town just outside of the park is 29 Palms. There's not a ton there. It's not super built up. In fact, it's almost like part of the desert. And the desert is a place that you get a lot of unique people. It's a place where you can live and not be bothered. It's a place where there are... UFO sightings. There's even this famous UFO, how do you say it? UFOlogist? UFOlogist? George Van Tassel. And he has this, this dome, almost like museum to, to UFO sightings out there, out in the desert. It's a cool place with a lot of interesting people. And so Will and I had met this guy named Mike. We met him in a bar, told us that his nickname was Mikey Forearms. He had these massive, massive forearms from lifting, years of lifting. I think it was even you, Mike, who said that you built him up like squeezing like rice. Maybe I heard that somewhere else, but I thought it was you. Anyway, we got to talking. He was telling us that he was doing some acting work, and it was an awesome conversation. He was originally from New York as well. It was the exact type of thing that I love to do when I'm traveling. You know, you get these stories that I've told where I'm, I'm stepping on a sea urchin and slicing my foot open. <laughs> Why are they always like me getting hurt? Or me having stomach problems around the world, getting beat up doing Muay Thai in, in Chiang Mai. And those things are cool and they make for fun stories, but they're not the moments that mean the most to me when I'm traveling. In fact, probably the things that mean the most to me when I'm traveling are kind of boring for a listener. It's really just, just me sitting down and enjoying somebody's company or you know, being invited into someone's home and enjoying a meal. They're the things that I like best. And so Mike's story I found really, really interesting. And, and in the moment thought, well, I wish I had brought my gear with me because we could have chatted about this. And that's happened over and over while traveling. I've gotten much better because now when I travel, I've always got my gear, my recording stuff in a backpack but at the time I didn't. And I thought, well, hopefully someday we can reconnect. I did that thing that we always do, like probably all of us do. It's like, oh, I'll be back. Oh, we'll talk again. And a lot of times we don't follow up. But Mike's got some exciting stuff going on right now. He wrote a short film that's now in the festival circuit that he's going to talk about in this episode. And so we did reconnect and we chatted for a while today. And he told me, all about his incredibly interesting life that I think could actually be a film in itself. I think that would be a really fascinating thing to watch, but maybe that's a conversation for another day. So my guest for today is Mike, Mikey Forearms, Mike Caravella, and he is an actor and a writer and just a really interesting guy. So go to the show notes for this episode and I will have links to his social media stuff and to find the Eventbrite invite to check out his film at a festival, 
which is obviously now a remote festival that will be happening a week from the time that this was released. If this is like six months from the release date and you're listening, I'm sure by now you can find it all over the place. So just follow the links to his social media and you'll you'll find all his information. All right, enjoy this conversation with Mike Caravella. It's great to see you again. We had first crossed crossed paths and we've figured out the timeline here probably early 2018. I think so my friend Will and I have been all over the states together. I think that trip started in LA cuz we've like through the course of the time we've known each other we're trying to visit every baseball stadium. So I think it was on this trip that we started in like San Diego then LA and then made our way across to Joshua Tree into 29 Palms and ran into you. I think probably when I did the Joshua Tree episode, probably even mentioned you because I was like, we met this guy, Mikey Forearms, wild guy. <laughs> so um, I think I actually remember that. And I think we I think we actually talked about the baseball thing because I and that's where we connected. I probably I probably carded you guys. I was bartending at that place, and then that's why I saw the Brooklyn address and we started talking about that. And then the baseball stuff. I'm sure we talked about because I do kind of the same thing. I drive around the country and visit baseball stadiums. So I'm pretty sure we connected on that as well when we, when we met and you guys were kind of like, what are you doing? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I'm, I'm gonna, I think later on we'll get to 29 Palms because I think it's an interesting place. And for people who have never been out to the desert, I think it would be a bit of a treat for them to learn about it. Um, but yeah, let's, Let's start with Brooklyn and start with East New York and, and let me know what, what early life was like. Yeah, well, I'm, you know, I was born in East New York, Brooklyn, in the 70s. And that was a crazy place. You know, my parents, uh, Italian-American, Sicilian-Americans, and my all my grandparents are off the boat, Sicilians. So um, they were hard-nosed people. They, you know, they didn't have it easy. Um, they wanted better for their kids. Um, you know, we weren't allowed, like we weren't allowed to speak Italian because they wanted that in the past. It was like, you're not Sicilians, you are Americans. So we're not even going to teach you the language, which is kind of interesting living in Southern California for so long. Yeah. There's a big Mexican culture here. They're all very steeped, excuse me, in speaking the language and their culture. And like, I was taught the opposite. I was like, they don't understand why I don't speak Italian. I'm like, no, we were just like, we were taught. You don't, you, you don't tell anybody used to say you're American. You know? So that was like, they were running away from that. They had a new life, a new start. And they were, you know, and my parents, you know, my parents were poor. My grandparents were poor, both, both sides. And, uh, so they were trying to make their way. They got married young. My, my mom was 20. My dad was 18 when they got married. And, uh, my dad was hustling, trying to figure out ways. So my dad actually, uh, Sometime in my young childhood, before I remember, became a bookie. So oh. my dad was like, you know, one of those guys, you know, he wasn't any kind of hardcore mafioso guy. He was a sports book and a daily numbers guy. You know, the, the lottery does that stuff now. But back in those days, my dad actually would go down to like people's houses or like meet people on street corners and they would play the daily number. Like they'd give them like they'd give them a three digit number and pay him, you know, the place to bet. And you would check the winner by going into the sports page the next morning and look at the racing form, the winners, but you would actually look at the attendance 
at the end of the races and the last three numbers of the attendance at the racetrack that day, that was the daily number. So, so my dad would take sports bets and do the daily number. And then, you know, the government had enough of that. And they yeah. took all that stuff over. <laughs> <laughs> it was, it was bad until it paid them. And then it wasn't bad anymore. Yeah. <laughs> That's a, that was a big thing in like the Cuban American community in, in New York and New Jersey. Also the, the daily number. Right. It was a big, strong thing. And you know, so there was a mix because when I grew up, when like when I was in East New York, I mean, there was still some Italians, but the neighborhood really changed over to a black community. And uh, so I was pretty much the minority in my neighborhood growing mm. up. Mike Tyson grew up, like Mike Tyson talks about that neighborhood. Yeah. And he's a little bit, he's the same age as my older brother. So he literally grew up like five or six blocks from me. I was on Crescent Street. He was on Essex Street. Oh, I know exactly where that is. Know what I'm talking about. And, um, you know, he talks about how crazy that place was. So I was there, same place, same time. And my older brother, who I think is the same age as Mike, likes to tell a story that Mike Tyson stole his bike while he was riding it. (laughs) (laughs) And I don't know if it's true or not, but who am I to get in the way of a great story? Wow. So then, I mean, I would imagine with that kind of stuff comes from, you know, kind of a hard upbringing. Was there like street fights and stuff like that? And was school tough? Oh, I was like, I wasn't really allowed out of the house. We lived in the Brownstone and if any of you know, and, um, and it was my grandparents Brownstone, but my grandfather uh, passed away. So my grandmother was downstairs and we were upstairs. So my grandmother by herself had the majority of the Brownstone. And then me, my parents and my brother shared the upstairs, which is smaller. And, um, and uh, yeah, so I would sit outside my bed, like outside my bedroom window, and there was a bar across the street from my house. So there were stabbings and shootings, and like so, I was six, seven years old, staring out my bedroom window, watching people get murdered across the street. It was Holy it was just a crazy, God. crazy time. You know, there was uh, you know they've made documentaries about that neighborhood at that time. I mean, it was ridiculous amount. I mean, they talk about now like New York City, like three hundred murders or four hundred murders might be like high for the whole city. I think there was something like 300 murders a year in that neighborhood. It wow. was really insane. It was an insane place. So, uh, yeah. And then we moved out, actually. We moved to Queens. I got hit by a car right in front of our house. Oh. And, I got, you know, and the lady who was driving the car, like, wanted to get away and drove with me under the car. So I got, like, dragged down the block underneath her car. I was seven years old, I think. And, uh, yeah, so she almost got away, but she tried to turn a corner and my dad came out at that point. I was in front of the house and I went out in the street. I was chasing a ball or, or something. I don't even know what I was doing. Cause I really didn't venture far from in front of the door. And we lived only maybe we were towards the end of the block. So maybe like a hundred feet from a stop sign. So she was going, she wasn't really, uh, planning to stop. I don't think when, when I came out and then, uh, I think she turned the corner and my dad came out at that point and like, while she slowed down and turned the corner, he jumped in her window to stop her because she wasn't even going to stop. Holy shit, dude. So I was under the car and I was getting dragged under it and bounced around. So I was in bad shape and I, uh, you know, I had a compound fracture of my femur and my head was, you know, just, you know, lacerations all over. And like my back, I actually saw burn scars on my back because I was stuck to the muffler. Oh my (laughs) uh, God. Yeah, so they came, like, they, they actually read me my last rites when I was a kid. So, uh, yeah. But uh, I made it through, and uh, I was in a body cast from my chest down both legs with rods in my right leg from the compound fracture for, like, six months. So I didn't even go to school. Like, I 
I missed the whole second half of second grade and the first half of third grade. And I just laid in the hospital bed, uh, you know, in East New York, you know, most of the, most of it during the summertime with no air conditioning. So, you know, pleasant experience. Like <laughs> <laughs> that is horrible. I mean, so in, in early life, were you interested in sports? Did you have any interest in like acting in the arts? Well, no, but that's kind of the interesting because that's going to lead into where I'm at now because um, I spent a lot of time in my head. I was laying in the bed, mm. you know, and we didn't, you know, I wasn't allowed outside and there wasn't a lot of kids around for me because uh, the neighborhood was changing and it was very dangerous and like I think families were, were moving out. So there wasn't a lot of kids in my neighborhood, so I didn't have a lot of friends. So I spent a lot of time in my head and laying in the bed playing with stuffed animals and action figures and creating scenarios you know, imagination. And so like that kind of started like me just being like really creating things in my head and just spending a lot of time doing that. So, uh, yeah, I didn't have a lot of sport activity at all because I, you know, I, I lived, you know, you, you know what East New York's like, there's nowhere really, you know, especially at that time, there was really no parks and stuff. You didn't go to parks in those days, you know? And so it's just like, I was just going to school and going back to the house. That was really life. So living in, you know, being in that hospital for a year really made me kind of a introverted kid and, yeah. uh, because I was just, there was nothing else for me to do. Um, so I, that, that kind of built me creating, you know, scenarios and universes and stuff in my head and, you know, always play acting. Once um, we moved out, of, we moved out of Brooklyn at that point, but that was like the last straw for my mother. My mother told my father, it's like, where leaving Brooklyn now. You could stay if you want, but I'm taking the kids and we're going. So uh, we actually, so, you know, he didn't fight that actually. So we, we moved to Queens and moving to Queens was like moving to the country. There was trees and grass, which <laughs> yeah. like, you know, I never saw before. <laughs> it's kind of funny because there was like this little oak tree that they just planted in front of the apartment that I lived in. And like, I could get up in it and climb it. And that was like, you know, but that took a while. I didn't actually, couldn't, when we moved to Queens, I still couldn't walk. I was out of the cast but I had to learn how to walk all over again. So that was a weird time too, because moving into a new neighborhood and there's kids around and it's a safe environment. Um, you think that would be a good thing, but I had to be carried in by my father, like to the house first time coming to the neighborhood because I wasn't walking yet. And you know, kids, kids are cruel and you see them whispering and pointing like, you know, so I remained kind of introverted. So the first thing for me to do, like, moving to Queens was climbing this tree in front of the house. So once again, that's what I would do. Like there was this tree that I could just kind of sit outside. Like, so I would climb the tree when I, and I worked on it every day so I can climb to the top. And like, I would just sit there for like an hour or two and just once again, be in my head, imagining, creating scenarios, doing stuff. That's what I loved to do as a kid. And then actually when I started moving around a little bit better, you know, I was getting a little older, maybe like nine years old at this point. The rock scene, you know, there was like the hard rock scene started building and I started like liking music. And um, so like there was bands like Boston, which I loved at the time. And, and like, you know, but I remember like the big things were like Meatloaf and Queen and groups like that were just coming out with albums. Like Queen just came out with like Night of the Opera, which is like the Bohemian Rhapsody album. And then Meatloaf came out with Bad Out of Hell. And those are very dramatic songs. So I would lock myself in the bedroom and put those songs on and actually act out scenarios. So like I would do like, I would do like dramatizations of those songs by myself. I would do that like a lot. Yeah. Cause it's like, it's I actually did like weird stuff too. Like I was an eight year old kid doing like Barry Manilow, Copacabana. Acting <laughs> <bad>. <laughs> so, um, that was a big, that was a big thing to me. And that was, um, 
that was that that was a big part of my personality. I recognized it then. Part of the problem was though was like my parents wanted you know wanted the kids to do good. So like you know so they were like you know they wanted us to rise above. And particularly my mom was very big on making sure we got the most out of school. But in my mom's head, the old school time that meant going to Catholic school. <laughs> so I was a Catholic school kid. And Catholic school was not the right place for me. It was just such an oppressive environment. And like I started, as I started growing up a little bit and I started making friends and, and reaching out a little bit, um, I became more of a personality. And like my mischievous comedic personality came out very early on in school once I had, you know, in the Brooklyn school, the Catholic school, there was like these old school nuns from like the 1930s who walked around like with rulers and, and I'm serious, dude, like with, you know, there was physical abuse in those schools. There was the principal of the school actually had a big paddle that she called the Board of Education. And if you got sent to the principal's office, you got bent over her desk and she swung like big roof at your, at your butt. I mean, that stuff happened. Like, if you spoke in class, they scotch taped your mouth, put an X with scotch tape across your mouth, and you sat there all day with tape on your face, wrapping your knuckles with, with rulers. So all that stuff is real. You know, even in the Queen School, I remember a kid getting pulled up in front of the classroom and getting his pants dropped in front of the class and spanked by a nun. Wow. I mean, this is the stuff that they did back then. <laughs> yeah. I, probably I, acceptable. And your parents, you know, if, if that happened to you, you were the bad guy. Yeah, you were the embarrassment. I've heard of the paddle. I remember talking to a guy once because I was telling him that like I've worked in administration in in New York City now in schools, and he's like, "Oh yeah, when I was a kid, I went to Dewey, and like if you acted up, you got hit with like a wooden paddle, like an oar." <laughs> there was no yeah, and there was there there was no sympathy there, man. They really wound up on you. I I remember like so many stuff. I could tell stories all day on this stuff. I remember like the physical education teacher would like literally put kids in the headlock. And I don't know, I mean, I don't know if anybody used the terminology anymore, but there's a terminology we used to call noogies where they take like the knuckle and dig it into the top of your head. So like the says that teacher at the Catholic school, we were like fourth and fifth grade. We grab you in a, we grab you in a chokehold and give you noogies, just jam his knuckle on the top of your head. <laughs> I mean, I would never honestly like, or obviously advocate for any of these things, but so far some of these experiences sound quite harrowing. Do you think that that helped you to become more creative and interesting or did, did this stuff kind of like scar you? No, I think in the, in, in the long run it did, but at the time it didn't because like my parents didn't really recognize that I should be pushed in a different direction mm. that I was, which was kind of interesting to me because like they would have friends over on like a Friday or Saturday night, like, and they'd be all, you know, this is like old school. You're talking about late seventies, early eighties, you know, so people just kind of still had cocktail parties in the house, you know? So like, you know, my parents have like cocktail parties in the house with their friends and they're like, Hey, let's look, look what this kid can do. And they would bring me out and they would put on like their old doo-wop records or their 1960s R&B records and have me like sing along with the records and like perform. And like, I was like the entertainment for the evening and they would do that. But yet they, you know, but in their way, that wasn't the way to push me to like as a career. That wasn't what they wanted. They thought of me as a smart kid. I guess I was pretty smart, and I was always told I was a I was a, an intellectual kid, but I was not focused. So that was always like the school issue. I was always like you know. So they you know like oh you're smart. You should become a lawyer. You should become you know you should become a doctor. You know that's like so you got to focus on your studies. And I had no interest in that at all. You know I wanted to you know I wanted to create. I was lost in like 
because I spent so much time alone, I, I, I fell in love with movies very early on, you know, and, uh, it's still my passion to this day. I'm not really, I know everybody's into like the episodics, but I'm still a movie guy. I mean, I watch movies endlessly, like, and I'll, and I'll watch stuff, you know, I'm at a point now where I've seen a lot of stuff, so I watch a lot of weird stuff at this point because there's not much stuff for me to see that's new, and I like to watch new stuff constantly. So, uh, so that's always been a big part of my personality, but I wasn't being pushed in that direction. So there was, there was, there was difficult times, and then like you talk, you asked me about sports earlier. Um, once I got healthy and I was able to move around again, my mother wanted me to get out of the house a little bit, so she kind of, she pushed me towards baseball. She signed me up to little league, and I went kicking and screaming. But once I actually started playing baseball, I really fell in love with it. And I became really big into baseball. And then football later on towards high school, but that was another complication I'll get to in a minute. So, like, baseball became a big part of me. And then um, I wound up actually going to a Catholic high school at first because I wanted to play football in the local public school. We were living in Queens, like, around in an apartment complex village called Glen Oaks. Which, oh, yeah. yeah. Like, Bell Rose, Queens Village. And, um, so the public school was Martin Van Buren, um, and they didn't have a football team. And so I wanted to play football at this point. You know, the giant, I'm, I'm a big New York Giants football fan growing up and like Lawrence Taylor hit the scene and that was my thing, you know? So, uh, I wanted to play football. And so I actually, uh, took the, what's called the co-op test. I'm not sure if they still give that test. Um, which is like you to go, when you go to a Catholic, uh, K through eight school, they give you the test to you know to enter into the Catholic schools. So um, you list three schools that you like. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what I was listing. I was just listing like cool names that I thought were cool <laughs> names. You have no idea what you do. This is your future. This is how you're making decisions, right? So I listed three schools. I listed uh, St. Francis Prep and Holy Cross because those are two names that all my friends are talking about. And then I listed St. John the Baptist because I thought that was a pretty cool name and maybe I liked his Bible stories that they were teaching me when I was a kid. But like, we lived in Queens and St. John the Baptist was like all the way out in Long Island. So that mm. wasn't even a reality. And then I think I listed Holy Cross number one and St. Francis number two. But St. Francis didn't accept kids that listed them number two. So, and so and my grades were good. My test score was good enough to make St. Francis prep, but I didn't accept it because I listed them number two, not number one. So, uh, because I actually took the Regis test, Regis High School, and I got accepted to Regis. So I was a, that, my parents wanted me to take the Regis test. And I actually got accepted to Regis High School, which, you know, is a, is, is a high educational school. So, um, but I didn't want to go there because there no sports were mm. And at that point, I was really into sports. So Holy Cross was the only option for me. So I wanted to go to Holy Cross, and that was a disaster. You know, so uh, I played football the first year, and... Uh, but I was, once again, I was starting to, you know, branch out to my creative side. And that was not accepted there at all, at all. And, um, you know, I actually did really good on my entrance exams there. And they put me in all these honor classes. And um, and I think their passing grades were, like, higher than, like, regular passing grades. I'm pretty sure, like, because I was in honor classes, like, passing was 70, not mm. 60 or 65. And, um, you know, I'm on the football team. And, um I wrote a paper in theology that questioned certain things in the, in the Bible. Oh, <laughs> so yeah. So I got an incomplete on that, on that paper, which gave me an incomplete in the course. And then I think I had like grades in the high sixties in a couple of classes, which was failing in their mind. So they threw me out. They kicked me out after one semester. 
So, <laughs> so I, you know, not not like, oh, maybe he's not, you know, maybe he's not ready for honor classes. Let's just put him in the regular classes. And it was all because I wrote that paper that they didn't like, and they gave me an incomplete in theology. They didn't even ask me to rewrite the paper so I can not get the incomplete. Just to know. So he's got an incomplete in theology. He's got these couple of classes. We got to get rid of Even though I was a kid on the football team in honor classes, they had to get rid of me, which is kind of a, which is a funny story because like, I became a high school football coach later on in life. And um, I was, my first head coaching job was at Long Island Lutheran High School. And in the rounds of making the rounds of like high school football, I actually ran into the head football coach from uh, Holy Cross as an adult who was still the head coach. When the guy who was the head coach when I was there as a kid was still the head coach. So I ran, I went into him and I told him that story and he just shook his head and he goes, yeah, they did stuff like that all wow. the time. So there was definitely, so that was not a place for me. And, uh, yeah. So, you know, long story short, you know, I went to another school for like the back end of ninth grade. I finally went to Van Buren in 10th grade cause I ran out of options. Um, ninth, I mean, it's actually a funny story, the back end of ninth grade, cause my parents actually sent me to a private school for the back end of ninth grade. And, um, I actually had all nineties in that school, but they asked me not to come back anymore because of my behavior. So I would, I would start conga lines in the middle of class. <laughs> I actually, we were out of class on the second floor. I like in the middle of class, I got up and jumped out the window on the second floor because I thought that was funny. So I was doing, I was working on my comedy routine. And even though I was a really good student, I got really good grades there. They didn't, they didn't want me back. So I literally had like a, you know, a GPA in the nineties at that school. But they told my parents at the end of the year. Uh, we prefer him not to return next year. I'm surprised your your folks didn't ship you off to like military school or something. Yeah, they didn't. They, you know, my folks at that point actually were having their own problems and they actually were in the middle of beginning their divorce. Okay. So uh, dad was starting to act out a little bit and, uh, you know, they were together for a long time as kids. And now, you know, they were just drifting in different ways. And, you know, the 80s was a crazy time in New York. And we'll get into a little bit of that in my behavior, you know, but, but dad was partying a little too much and, um, you know, he wanted to do different things. And my parents, there was chaos in my house. You know, I remember a lot, like, it's kind of, I find it funny now, but at the time, I guess it wasn't funny, but it's like, I always remember waking up to screaming in the house at like 6 a.m., my parents. And I would always wake up and like say, why do my parents get up so early to fight with each other? And at that point, it didn't realize to me, because that's because my dad was just coming home. Oh, no. <laughs> you know, that. That was, that's what was going on. I never, you know, so I kind of find that amusing now, but I, but that was always like a head scratch to me. It's like, it's 6am. They're screaming at each other again. What could be so upsetting at 6am? I wasn't putting it together yet, but now I, now I understand. From this point in your life, um, I heard you mention music that it, it makes sense that you were building these stories. Cause that's like really theatrical kind of music. Um, yeah. from, from like this stage of your life, can you recall, either like the movies or directors or actors who you take or you were taking influence from or the stuff that you really liked? Yeah. So at that point when I was a teenager, you know, it was kind of a weird time because like I grew up like as a young kid, like, you know, my parents, you know, probably took me to some movies that weren't like the best movies to take kids to at the time. Mm. But thinking back, I'm glad they did because like they would take me in the movie theaters to see the Godfather, one of wow. the Jaws and the Exorcist, which I had no business going to see at like seven years old. I have not, I mean, 
you know, Jaws, I actually, my parents got mad at me after Jaws because they just bought a brand new car. It was, I, I, Jaws came out like 76, 77, something like that. And they just bought a brand new Chevy Nova, which was like the hot car at the time, you know. So I threw up all over that car <laughs> after, after seeing Jaws because, of the, you know, you remember the Robert Shaw scene at the end of the movie where he's like swallowing the shark and it's biting on He gets you know, cut in half, half, yeah. <laughs> I think I was like seven and that was all <laughs> too much for me. <laughs> But then here's a funny story going back to Brooklyn too. Like the exorcist, I, you know, so the, the exorcist, um, that movie was crazy. And, um, I remember there was, there, there was all those scenes like where like, and I closed my eyes through most of it. You know, I was just petrified and closed my eyes through most of it. And then remember there's all this religious dogma in my house. So that builds all that stuff. So, um, but there's the scenes that I remember that were vivid because I closed my eyes. All of it was like all those panning shots to the door, mm. you know, like what was going on behind that door. So when we lived in the brownstone, um, it, you know, my bedroom was right behind the closet that had like, it was a door that you opened up, but there was a ladder in there that would go up to the roof of the brownstone. So now I know after the fact that my dad had used to go up to the roof to smoke. Uh. So he like, I guess one night he left, the trap door on the roof opened and there was wind and the ladder was blowing and banging on the door. And I was just traumatized <laughs> oh, no. after that. So there's all that kind of stuff. And then, you know, there's also a funny story of my brother with that stuff, like with the Godfather, you know, I saw that movie and that was tr- the, the horse head scene was traumatic. Oh yeah. So uh, we had a, uh, we had a dog. I, I, I don't know. It was some kind of a mutt. It was like a medium sized shaggy haired dog. So my brother thought it'd be amusing to stuff the dog in the bottom of the bed under the covers that night before I went to bed. And uh, so I got in my bed that night and I stuck my feet. I don't know how we got the dog to stay there, but I got in the bed that night, stuck my feet down, and I felt the hair at the bottom of the bed. And instantly oh, no. Godfather. So <laughs> they took me to these great, fantastic movies that I really admire and adore today. But uh, but they left some impression as a child. Yeah. <laughs> And, uh, but those are like, the, but I had those images and that stuff in my head from mm. a very early age. And then, you know, you, you're, I'm a teenager in, in the eighties. So you got influenced by all that Stallone and Schwarzenegger stuff that became very prominent. And, uh, and I don't watch any of that stuff at all anymore, but that stuff was like very important to me back then. But then I started building, you know, from, I guess maybe from the Godfather movies and like watching classic TV and classic movies, I really started building an affinity for Marlon Brando. And, uh, you know, back, back in those days, there was, um, channel nine and channel five and channel 11, um, in New York were like local stations and like on, particularly on Sundays, they would play a lot of classic stuff. So a lot of times on Sundays I would watch like what was, I think WOR was channel nine and WPIX was channel 11. They would play all these classic movies and it would start with like Abner Costello and Three Stooges movies in the morning and then play out. I would just love sitting on, uh, on Sundays and just inhaling classic movies. I just, I just love that stuff. So, so I, so I really started building an affinity for all things, you know, so I was an old soul as a kid, you know, there was mm. a lot of stuff going on. And even with the music, like I grew up mostly in the eighties, but I really had an affinity towards seventies hard rock and I, and I still do. I mean, so, so like I was a Van Halen, deep purple, black Sabbath, Led Zeppelin, and I think I heard my dad listen to that stuff, and that was influencing. So that was kind of stuff that I listened to. And like, if you listen to like a lot of that stuff, it's very dramatic as well. You know, 
Black Sabbath is a very dramatic band. Um, early Deep Purple with Ronnie James Dio as the lead singer. Those lyrics are very dramatic. So that's always been an appeal to me and a lore to me. Iron Maiden, stuff like that. There's always fantastical stories being told in that music. And I think that was really the draw. Van Halen was like a big uh, call to my party sense that was developing in my teenage years. Because that was just good time. 80s were coming. And everything's about the party. You know, David Lee, David Lee Roth exemplified party. And I was really going in that direction. Apparently, when my parents were getting divorced, and I wasn't really getting much parental guidance at that point. You know, they got really entwined in their breakup. And I was 15 years old, pretty much on my own, running the, you know, running the streets. You know, so very early on. And then I think my dad was gone by the time I was 16 out of the house. And, uh, and mom was just trying to keep everything afloat. And uh, my brother was already growing up. So, you know, and then I was I was a pretty strong-headed kid and hard to control at that point. So I was kind of like, kind of left to do my own thing because um, I was going to do it anyway. So uh, so it became crazy at that point. Like, you know, I was like a weird kid because I was still very steeped in sports. So athletics and all that stuff were very important to me. But I became really a party kid at 16 mm. years old. And like from 16 to 25, I was literally out in the nightclubs, like on a nightly basis. Nobody, I mean, the drinking age was 18 in New York. I was 16. Nobody ID'd anybody at those day, in those days. You're talking about like 1984, 85, right around that time. I was in the bars and the clubs every night. Like, so like going to Manhattan, hanging out in the East Village, hanging out, you know, doing all that stuff. It was a very, became, everything became my whole existence, you know, so it was kind of a wild time. There's uh there was this guy and I, you know, maybe some of your older uh, people who listen to this know, his name is Bear Jones and he was kind of like this Manhattan socialite who was in Andy Warhol's circle. So like, I ran into this guy in the bar one night, we started talking and he like, he handed me this business card that he had and it had a hotline phone number on it, you know, and he says, just call this number every night and it'll tell you like the hot clubs you know, to go to. So like where like the celebrities are going to be and where this like, so he had an inside track to like celebrities because he was a rich guy, the socialite. And he hung out with Andy Warhol in like his circles. So I knew nothing of this guy at the time. I just thought it was just, you know, I, I just met this guy in the bar and we just started talking and he handed me his car. I was like, that's cool. But I literally started going to like, I was like, I was on, I was on the list because I called this hotline. So like I'm wow. 16, 17 years old. I'm going to Studio 54 in his later days, Webster Hall, Palladium, Limelight, all these classic great. And I just got totally enveloped in that. I mean, who, who wouldn't, you know? It was just that time in New York, the 1980s, the club scene was insane. And uh, I didn't find my way out of it for like eight years. I was just doing that for like, that, that became my whole existence. You know, I worked some jobs just to make some money to buy some clothes on Friday night and go to the clubs. And uh, that was, that became who I was for a long time. And I was totally, you know, I had no focus whatsoever. My focus became that nightlife. I was going to say, did you get caught up in the, in the drinking and the drugs? Oh yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's part of it. You know, and, and cocaine in the eighties was just, you know, it, I mean, there's some stigma to that stuff now, but like, you know, then, I mean, I, I, I was in bathrooms in clubs doing coke with, cops and doctors. I mean, that's the way it was. Everybody was doing it. I was going to say, was all, yeah. it was almost a, <laughs> almost a status symbol in the 1980s. Yeah. yeah. So it was like, and then, you know, but, you know, and it was fun, but it becomes too much. And, uh, you know, it takes over who you are and uh, you become, you know, 
and I was in a vicious cycle. And uh, yeah, so it got actually pretty excessive towards the tip end of it. And uh, by the time I was like around 24, 25, right around there, and uh, I actually had a pretty bad experience one night. I, you know, I was partying way too long, and I didn't think I was coming down. And my, my heart was, I felt like it was beating out of my chest. And I took myself to the emergency room, and uh, I thought I was dying. I wasn't, but I thought I was. And uh, I was enough to scare me that I just said, all right, I'm not doing that anymore. And it really stopped. I mean, so the drug scene, like that stuff stopped right at that moment. Mm. But, you know, it wasn't healthy behavior. I just, I just cured myself of cocaine with alcohol, uh. which I heard, yeah. So a lot of people did that. Like I've, I've actually talked to a lot of people like Gustavio, that, that, that's, a, that's a, a behavior. So, and then, you know, I got pretty heavy into drinking for a while, but not too long because like I had some very dysfunctional uh, relationships with women going into that. And then one led into my, actually, who was my first wife, who I was only married to for a few years. And I only knew her for six months when we got married. Well, when we got married, um, she got pregnant right away. And once my, once she was pregnant, my son was on the way, everything stopped. Mm. I, mean, I just, I was a strong enough personality, you know, to say, all right, now, you know, and I remember my own childhood and the chaos, you know, it was in my house. And I never wanted to do that to my kids. So I just stopped everything cold. And, uh, and, and I became a different human being at that point. So, you know, what were you like, what was your, your line of work when your son was born and after that? Oh, so, yeah. So at that point, right, right. So I was still, that's the interesting thing because, you know, my dysfunction, I was always going back and forth of what I was trying to do. Like acting is a hard business, you know, and uh, I was always, I'm focused on that a little bit more now. I was always, you know, trying to work my way into the business since I was 18 years old. I got my first headshots when I was 18 years old, and I was walking, you know, trying to work New York City. But it's a, it's a tough game, and it's hard to figure things out when you don't really have any direction. And I had no um, traditional training, you know, so I wasn't like I didn't take drama in school because I I dropped out of high school at 16 years old. So, um, um, so I was trying to figure it all out, and I took some classes, but trying to find the right teachers. And when you're young. There's so many people trying to game you and just get money. So you, you try and weed through that stuff and it's hard to find the right thing. So you get frustrated and you bounce. You, I'm going to do it. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm not going to. So there's a lot of back and forth. And that actually happens longer than you'd think. So um, um, it was still happening when you met me. <laughs> so, um, um, yeah, so I had menial jobs, pizzerias, stuff like that, you know going back and forth, you know, just construction jobs, you know, doing that whole thing and trying to work your way into acting. So um, when I met my first wife, I was living in New York at the time, but I was planning to move to L.A. So, um, uh, I'm sorry, I got distracted by my Yeah, it's all good. Um, yeah, so um, I, she decided she wanted to come with me, so I took her with me, and she got pregnant with my son in L.A., which precipitated her saying, all right, time to go back to New York, which I wasn't particularly thrilled about. And that was, you know, that was the beginning of the end. We were only married a few months, and my son was on the way, and I was having to give up on a career that I was just trying to start. So we actually moved to L.A. for a few months, and I was trying to pursue things. I made some actually really good connections with a lot of people, and, like, there was actors who were coming up that are big stars today that I was hanging out with on the come up at that time. This is like the early nineties, you know? So there's some A-list guys that are, you know, 
that you know that I was hanging out with on nightly basis at that time. Um, where they, were, they were just getting started doing some doing some good stuff. So I felt really good about where I was going, and then I had to give it all up real quick. And um, so I came back to New York, and I once again I was working some menial jobs, and uh, I wasn't really happy at all. But you know, I was looking forward to my son, and then my daughter like a year after that. I had two kids really quick, and um, so I I always had the affinity for for sports, like I told you, and um, so um, I was trying to figure out what I could do that would be interesting to me besides acting because now I was like in this place where I needed to have, you know, I had to settle down, you know, live on Long Island and get the real job, which was an atrocious thing. (laughs) 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 So, um, so, uh, I actually was coaching football back and forth, you know, for a while, you know, I did some, you know, as a young man, I was, I, I, I liked doing that. And, um, so the school that I coached at before, Long Island Lutheran, I mentioned that. I was coaching there as an assistant coach. Um, I went back to it, and they, the guy that hired me, who was a friend of mine as an assistant, was leaving. So I went and talked to them, and they actually hired me as the head football coach at the school. So, which doesn't pay anything, but it sounds good, you know. So, um, but I was really like, that's, you know, this is a good thing, place for me to be. This is what I want to do. So I actually went back to school and got my teaching degree. So, um, so that was a crazy time in my life. I thought I was doing everything the right way. I was, uh, I was going to school full time. I was actually taking like 15, 18 credits a semester, every semester for like two years. I was working two jobs. I was working a landscaping job, working a deli job. I was coaching. I was a head coach and football coach. I have a two year old and a one year old, you know, I'm raising kids. I mean, it was just an insane time. And I think I'm doing everything the right way and everything's going in the right direction. And, um, you know, so that was all pretty cool. And then I finished the teaching degree in two years. You know, I actually, there was one semester in there. I just had dedicated. I wasn't doing this where I took 21 credits at three different schools. I went to Queens college, York college in Jamaica and Hofstra all in the same semester, took 21 credits to get these classes done so I can move on with my life. So, um, so that, so I did that and, um, I was on this road, but I wasn't really happy. I was more distracted. I would say, and I was dedicated to raising my kids the right way. That was really the core of it, dedicated to raising my kids the right way. So I finished school and I got a teaching job and a head coaching job in upstate New York and Orange County, New York. And um, that was all going great for about six months. I, my first season was a great year. You know, they, you know, the school was down. They had a horrible football team. I had like the best football team they had in like in decades. And then, um, uh, Right after Christmas, I came home one day and the house is empty. The wife is gone. The kids are gone. The furniture is gone. So, uh, you know, I wasn't happy. She wasn't happy. There was a better way to do things, but she chose to do things a different way. And like, it started very contentious uh, time between me and her. And I won't get, I won't stay too long into that. But long story short, there was a long, ugly custody battle that I eventually won. So I raised my kids, my two, my two older ones. I have a third one now at this point. So I raised my kids. I won the custody trial eventually. Oh, it took some time, and that's a story for another day. But uh, I won, and I raised them. And then, but in that time period, I met my second wife, who's been great. She's been super supportive of everything that I wanted to do. And at that time period, things became really difficult. Like I stopped coaching football because, like, trying to teach and football and win my kids when I had uh, the mother was being really difficult. Um, and like every visitation, every scenario was a, was a complex battle. So it became difficult to coach football in that, in that environment. So I just gave it up. 
And um, so I started thinking about what I wanted to do going forward. And I really, I needed to go back into acting. So um, I actually quit teaching. I was only teach. I did all that to become a teacher. I only taught three years. You know, I, I was going to say, I, 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 I identify with that a bit because even though you were on the trajectory for what we're all told is like the established way of life, that kid doing the conga line in class is still inside of you somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Even as a kid, and that was, even as a teacher. And, um, that was part of the problem. Even as a teacher, like, um, the kids love me. Like I, you know, I had a great relationship. I still do. I mean, I have, like you go on my, you go on my Facebook. I still talk to, like I was involved in three different high schools and, um, I still talk, these guys are like in their, some of them are in their forties now, you know? And, um, cause I was young. Like when I first started teaching, there was guys like, when I first started coaching football, I was only maybe like three years older than some of the kids I was coaching. Mm. So like I have guys who are now like, at, you know, who are my peers and like, I still talk to them like friends now, you know? So, so I had a great relationship with the kids, not so much with the parents and the administration cause I was on a different wavelength. Yeah. You know, I was always about taking care of the kids and what they have, you know, what they want. And even though I was the football coach and the PE teacher and like the enforcer, the tough guy, supposedly I wasn't that guy. I was like, you know, I would, I would, I would, I would gravitate to the kids who were rough around the edges who had nothing to do with football. And, um, but I was just trying to talk to them and guide them and help them find the direction that they want to go. And, you know, so they can, but and the schools would get mad at me because they want to like get rid of the deal. They want to get rid of these kids. You know, we can't, these kids are a distraction and a nuisance. So we got to try and find a way to get them out of school. And I was trying to find ways to help them. So there was always a divide there. Mm. There was a divide with the teachers and the administration and parents in the communities. Because, like, at that time, I was teaching in a small community upstate New York, and I was an interloper from the city, and, you know, that wasn't really accepted. So it was a weird, weird environment. So, um, and I was glad to get out of it quickly. But then I went right back. So I started bartending and, and jumped back into acting. So I started, like, trying to take class. So I started taking classes again and I really got heavy into taking classes, you know, really intense. I really threw myself into that. And, um, you know, some small, some, I started getting involved in theater stuff, theater groups of so doing some small black box stuff and really threw myself head first into it. So now I'm like, I want to say I'm around 30, somewhere around there. And like, so I'm raising my kids. I have this super support network in my, you know, at some, we, I married my second wife in 2000. We, we got together in the end of 2001 and then uh, we got married in 2004 and she's been my rock. I mean, mm. she was there for my kids from when they were little, um, you know, they were four and three when, when we got involved with each other and, um, and uh, she's been a great mother to them and she's been a super supportive person to me and I couldn't have done all this without her. She's been my rock through the whole time and she believed in me and, and, um, was there for me through all that. So even though like, you know, when we met as teachers, we actually, she taught, we taught in the same high school. That's how we met. So, um, so, uh, you know, so that was tremendous. So like I threw myself head first in, but you know, as the acting business goes, it's a touchy thing. So, you know, you think you're making some headway and then, you know, you're not, and you know, you try and do some, you know, you, so I really felt like at some point, I think this is around 2004, I felt like I, I, you know, I was making good enough headway. I, um, I had a couple of small parts on a couple of TV shows, a couple of blips on the screen, um, Sopranos and um, Third Watch, the New York-based TV shows that were filming. Um, and then um, I did a Spike Lee movie, She Hate Me, and um, oh. small part, and um, small tiny part. Once again, you blink, you miss me. Yeah, yeah. But I'm there. Yeah. Um, 
Um, and then, you know, I got involved in these classes um, with a uh, teacher in New York who was based out of uh, uh, the system was based out of this L.A. based system by this guy, Eric Morris, who wrote the book in the Whacking Police. So uh, which is like a huge acting book, you know, so so like Eric came to New York to like he would come like once a year and like you would put on scenes for him and he'd assess everybody. So, um, you know, I did a scene in, in front of him with one of the girls in class from Danny in the Deep Blue Sea. And uh, he really liked it. And um, we went out to lunch after, you know, he took the smoke. There was like, I'm trying to remember, there was like maybe 50 or 60 people in this class that were there in front of him. And he took like maybe five people out to lunch. I was one of them. And um, he said, you're a captivating personality and there's no reason why you can't work in this business. And that's all the fuel I needed. Yeah. You just start figuring out, all right, we're going to LA. That's it. We're gone. You know, and, and we did. So by the middle of 2005, we moved to, we moved to LA. So, um, and I was out, you know, I was living in LA doing the acting thing for a while. And once again, it's a, it's a bumping grind. You know, I was in LA bartending, hustling the business, small thing here, small thing there, months and sometimes a year of inactivity. You got to try and keep your head and just, just ride it out. I actually had a pretty good, uh, independent project that I wrote and, um, we filmed uh, a short film. It's a long short film. It's actually like a 27 minute short film it's called la la land the original la la land not the movie i don't yeah. the movie but i won't i'm i you know you know and that went really well i mean things were that that project you know, it's up on youtube by the way if anybody wants to watch it it's on my you know if you type in my name in la la land it'll come up i posted it years ago when youtube put um parameters on how the length of videos you can only put up like 10 minute clips at a time yeah, yeah. in three clips so it's like la la land part one part two part three and it was a really great concept and it's been, you know, it was actually, you know, and I moved it around town for a while and I thought I had, you know, I thought it was going to get made several times. And I worked on that, um, for years and, um, actually wound up getting, I won't name names, but it actually wound up getting ripped off by a, by a major company. And then, um, I talked to some people and, and like independent producers and they actually took my idea and presented it to a network as theirs. And um, they took it and like, you know, I'm a, I'm, I'm an actor trying to hustle my way. I'm not going, you know, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to go after big companies that, that would blacklist me. So, you know, I just wow. let it go. And that's part of the business. That, that, that stuff happens every day. Unfortunately, that's, that's the name of the game. So that was kind of heartbreaking. And uh, it kind of, you know, it, it, it sent me into depression for a while because like, I really believe that I can, I can make this thing happen. And, um, and I felt like it was just taken out from underneath me. And, um, and then even still after that, I tried to make it after that as an independent movie. I stopped trying to, you know, myself, I tried to finance it myself, tried to raise money and get stuff. And I tried so, and I came close a couple of times, you know, and, uh, you know, one of my buddies, you know, who I met at that time, I was living in a scene. His name is Chad Coleman. He was on the wire and the walking dead. And he's on the Orville now. He's a, Famous character actor. Everybody he, he, Cuddy on The Wire. He, he was uh, uh, one of Marlowe's guys. He was Tyrese on The Walking Dead, and now he's on The Orville. Uh. And, uh, you know, we lived in the same complex. Like, we met. It was kind of fun. We met in the gym, and uh, we just started talking in the gym as two guys in the gym, you know, talking about weights and football. And then later that day, 
I, I'm walking out of my apartment and he's sitting by the pool. And I'm like, what are you doing? And he's like, I just moved in. So we just organically became buddies like that. And uh, I showed him a lot of land. He really loved it. And he really tried to help me get it done. But, you know, it's a funny business. And we couldn't, you know, we couldn't get it done. So, and that kind of sent me into a little free fall for a little while. You know, so like I was in and out of, you know, and I didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, you know, so I started writing a little bit more. So I kind of backed out of acting for a little while because it was a frustrating endeavor. Hmm. You know, because you, you know what you want to do, but um, it's hard, you know. Like when I talked to like a lot of my other creative friends, you know. And then actually an, act, an old acting coach in New York, one of my old acting coaches from New York, his name is Ed Comins, and he passed away at this point now. But he worked with Lee Strasberg like back in the day. Right, so he was, and um, and uh, he used to tell stories like, you know, writers write, painters paint, actors sit around and drink coffee. <laughs> yeah. So, so which there's a, there's really you know there's some truth to that because, you know, you can paint and then have a, a gallery showing. You can you know, you, if you're a musician, you can play gigs at bars or whatever. Acting is hard to act unless you know. Uh, unless you book a gig through the business, you know, you can, you know, you can make your own short films. And I did some of that and I still do. Um, but unless you have money, you know, it's hard to get those things going, especially, you know, now it's easier with the cell phones. But like you're talking about like the 20 years before the technological age, you're really, you know, for me anyway, through the eighties, nineties, and even the early, I mean, I think it was like 2008 was like smartphones hit the scene. So like before 2008, you're really dependent on booking actual work to actually act. Mm. You, know, you had to try, unless you want to put a black box theater, which is money. You know, you have to rent theaters and you have to get costumes and you have to do this stuff. So everything is money. Everything's money out of your pocket when you're trying to hustle to survive. So you try and do those things and you can do them a little bit, but you can't do them every day. You know, so it's, it's hard to, it's hard to keep afloat with your acting, keeping your chops unless you go to class a lot. And there's goods and bads to that, you know. I think, you know, a lot of friends, a lot of my friends stay very involved in the class for long periods of time. And I think that could be a bad exercise at some points because, you know, I think class becomes a very critical thing. And particularly a lot of acting teachers are just hypercritical. Hmm. And, um, you know, you get you get addicted to that criticism and, you know, you're always your self-esteem, you know takes a hit and you become unsure about stuff because you put yourself in an environment all the time where you're just being criticized. And, uh, you know, so I, I don't think that's a, a great, I mean, I think it's great to move around to different classes and get a little taste of everything, but don't stay in it too long. You know, take pieces here and there and create your own style and system and belief, you know. Yeah, my only reference point is I've done a little bit of like non-union background stuff where you're basically like the peon. But yeah. it, it, there's a lot of sit around and wait and maybe do 15 hour day and then never actually see yourself in the thing that you did. Yeah. So it can be tough. It's tough. And even when you book stuff, like at this point in my life now, I book some guest stars and some co-stars, but even when you're doing that, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's tough. So like, I, you know, like you do, you sit around, it's hard to keep you focused. It's not an easy thing, you know. You know, when you're a big star and you have a trailer and, you know, you can sit in there and you can meditate and get prepared, it's cool. But, like, you know, but, you know, when you're doing, like, co-star and guest star work, there is still a little bit of a hustle to that. And, you know, it's hard to keep your focus when you're on set that day and then try to be really good for the scene when they call on you. When you came to L.A., did you immediately go to the desert or were you in the were you out in the city? Oh, no, no. I was in the San Fernando Valley. So I was in the San Fernando Valley for 10 years. Oh, OK. And I did that. And like, you know, once again, I was 
going to classes and booking small parts here and there. Not a lot, you know, and uh, doing some short films and mostly bartending and waiting for something to happen, trying to make something happen. And you're always hustling. You're always trying to do stuff. So I made like, you know, I made a lot of good friends and I actually started ghostwriting for a guy who, um, who was a really established screenwriter at the time. I met him in the gym. I, I met everybody in the gym. I mean, you know, that's my life. I was a, you know, I was a football guy and then I became a strength and conditioning guy. And, you know, quick story, like my son, when he went to high school, my son went to one of the biggest uh, football high schools in Los, in Los Angeles. So, um, so uh, I got back involved in football for a little while. While he was in high school, I became a strength and conditioning coach at his high school. So um, I got back involved in football and weightlifting, and that became a big deal. So I was actually training a lot of guys, these guys that I coached and trained that are in the NFL right now. So um, so um, so that I was always in the gym. I became like a hardcore gym rat. But that's kind of a cool place because in LA, that's a networking opportunity. You meet a lot of people. You know, so I met a lot of my actor buddies and other people in the gym, as as well as all the football connections that I had at that point. So, um, so I met a guy who uh, his biggest movie was Can't Buy Me Love, which is like a big '80s movie made Patrick Dempsey a star. And I think he wrote the like kid and play movies, class act, and that stuff. And like he wrote some, he wrote for Disney for a while. And I think he was a writer on Doogie Howser. And like he was a really established guy, and we became pretty good friends. And he really loved La La Land. I mentioned La La Land. I showed him my La La Land. He really liked that. And um, so we became pretty close friends. And, like, he was working on some scripts. And we started sharing ideas. And um, and uh, so I started ghostwriting for him. So, like, we would sit down. Like, he would have ideas. And I would give him some of my ideas. And, like, he would take it and use it in his scripts. That he was... But at that point, he got more involved in reality TV. So, um, which, you know, got you got to pay the bills. So... So his actual, you know, focus became more about reality TV. He was producing reality TV. I'm not really trying to sell scripts anymore. But in that process, I presented him with an idea, um, which I thought was a great idea. And he loved it too. He loved it so much that he dropped his idea that, he, that I was helping him with and jumped on my idea to help me co-write my script. And uh, this is a few years ago. And um, it was called Mafia versus Zombies. The whole zombie <laughs> thing hit. And it was a great story. Um, it's a great story that I still think it's a great script, a winning script. Um, we tried very hard to sell it, and we almost sold it. Um, the problem was, is he is an old school Hollywood guy who's used to like presenting his scripts to William Morris and like saying, "Okay, here's your money, and we'll make this script." And that's not the way the business really works anymore. You got to hustle a little more. And I was like, you know, so um, you know, so he was he's an older guy who's established in the business and didn't really want to work that hard. Um, but um, but I was still eager and hustling and trying to make things happen. So there was a disconnect on the business side of how that script was going to get you know made. So but we had some really good feedback. I forget the name of the producer, but the producer in the movie that did Pride, Prejudice, and Zombies. Okay, which is a movie that a few years ago. He actually read the script and he said, "This is great. This is better than the script that I just financed. But I just threw thirty million at Pride, Prejudice, and Zombies, and I'm not." putting money into something else to go against that. That's actually better than it. So, so, I mean, that kind of stuff was happening. So, um, yeah, I mean, we, and, you know, and we were talking to a lot of people and my buddy Chad, once again, tried to get involved. And actually like when Chad got killed off of the show, uh, on walking dead, they'd have a show called the talking dead. Yeah. It's like after a show. And like after his last episode on the walking dead, he actually talked about my script a little bit on that show. 
and uh, we were trying to get it made at the time. He was going to be part of it, <clears throat> which so, you know, and he was just fresh off The Walking Dead, and I had this great new concept zombie thing with, uh, you know, 1980s mobsters, and um, it was a fun, great, crazy concept, and I don't want to give too much away because I'm so hopeful that one day I can sell it. You know, that the, the zombie thing's kind of oversaturated, and it was at that time. I think we're talking about 2014 at that point, right around there. So the market was pretty oversaturated at that point, too. So it's a great script. It's sitting on my shelf. Maybe one day we'll get it made. I'm hoping. You know, we'll see what happens. Um, and then, uh, so, yeah, so then I started writing more. And then I was more, I was really kind of frustrated with the, uh, with the acting business. So I focused on writing. And then at that point, there were some personal things that happened family-wise that, um, um, led me to leave California for a couple of years. We moved to Florida. My dad was really sick. I didn't think he was going to make it. He was living in Florida. My son went to college in Florida at the university of central Florida. And my daughter actually moved to North Carolina, but you know, she was sowing her oats a little bit and I wasn't happy about that. So like my kids are on the East coast. My dad's not doing well. I don't think he's going to make it. I'm not really happy in LA. So we moved to, uh, we moved to Florida. So I did to kind of, because I was like, at that point, I'm writing, and um, I don't really need to be in LA to write. If I'm going to sell something, I could be anywhere to sell something. So that was my focus at that point. So we've been, this is uh, 15 and 16 we're talking about. So I'm living down Florida and writing, and you know, trying to stay connected to my kids and and do all that. And I was actually acting a little bit down in Florida. I worked on a couple of commercials down there. I did like an international McDonald's commercial and a couple of things. And I actually auditioned several times for. Um, Bloodline, which is the old net, that was a really good Netflix show that was filmed down down there in the Keys, and I auditioned for it like three times, and then they called me back a fourth time, and um, I thought like, well, they like me, and they're trying to find a spot for me, so this is going to happen. And then right before my uh, fourth audition, I found a lump on my tongue, and uh, I got that checked, and I wound up having to get diagnosed with oral cancer. Oh, yeah. So. Um, that took over my life at that point. So, um, I actually, um, started going up to New York again, cause I actually kind of split my time between, um, Florida and New York because I was getting treated at Memorial Sloan Kettering, which saved my life. One the best cancer hospital in the world that those doctors were amazing. Uh, Dr. Richard Wong was my surgeon and, uh, I owe them my life cause like, you know, uh, it was still kind of early stage, but it was, getting close to later stage because it did, even though it was in my tongue, they found trace uh, amounts of cancer cells in several lymph nodes in my neck. Oh God. So that could be really bad. So like, but it was like, but the good thing was it was stayed in the lymph nodes and didn't like break capsule as they say, because if it breaks capsule then it gets spread everywhere and then, then you get some trouble. So, um, I was, you know, my, you know, at this point I have a younger son too. Me and my wife have a, you know, at that point he's uh four. My wife and I would still be, yeah, he's 10 now, but he was four at the time. So that was traumatic to me. Cause like, I got this little boy and I feel like I'm dying. And, uh, you know, so that became my survival became my priority. And so everything else got put on the back burner. I was just worried about taking care of this thing. So three surgeries, they removed 20% of my tongue. They, uh, they, I had a, I had two I had two separate neck procedures that are called um, I'm, I'll remember it in a second. But they opened up my neck and took um, 15 lymph nodes out of my neck, and then um, so I have this giant like uh, 
12 foot, 12 foot, 12 inch scar on my neck where they removed lymph nodes. Um, and, uh, and then chemotherapy and then radiation. Um, and the radiation is, uh, brutal. And anybody knows anything about cancer and radiation is like, they, they halfway kill you to, to, uh, to heal you. You know, the concept behind that is like they kill all the guilt. You know, cancer cells are, are disorganized and healthy cells are organized. So they, the concept is, is they kill all the cells and then the healthy cells can regenerate and the, and the, and the cancer cells cannot. Mm. So, um, so, you know, seven weeks of laying pinned to a table with a radiation machine zipping around my head um, every day was brutal, brutal. So, um, I mean, I couldn't eat because my tongue, if you think of an old football covered in the cold sores, <laughs> that was my tongue. Oh, my God. For like months. And like, so like they had me on all sorts of, I mean, and they have to. I mean, they had me on all sorts of drugs. I was take, drinking liquid, liquid oxycodone and fentanyl patches, slow-release fentanyl patches on my arm, and I was rinsing my mouth with lidocaine just to swallow a teaspoon of yogurt. Oh, my God, man. Yeah, so like, so I lost like 75 pounds, and I was really worn down to the nub, um, you know, but... I, you know, but they eradicated it, you know, and that was the concept. Like, we're gonna, you're young and you're strong and you're healthy, so we're going to come at you with everything because you can handle it, and we're going to zap this bitch and uh, and get rid of it permanently. And they did. So, like, I'm, 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 I just, Valentine's Day was my uh, four-year cancer-free anniversary. Oh, congrats, so, man. Thank you, man. That was my, yeah, that was my Valentine's Day was the last day of uh, radiation treatment. So that's where they counted from. That's day zero post. And I got scanned right before that, and the scan came back clear. So we already, even though I even even though I didn't finish the treatment yet, I knew it was clear because I got I got my scans before then. So that was great. That was a relief. But you have to finish the treatment, so you have to you know because I guess there are people who are like once they get a scan, they clear, decide not to finish the treatment, and they're like they're like even though you got this negative scan, you have to finish the treatment. And I was like, yeah, that's I'm 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 gonna do it. I'm doing whatever you, you guys know what you're doing. I I'm just you know. I'm I'm here to do whatever you need me to do. So um, so I went through that and it was brutal. I actually wound up in the hospital, like admitted for like the last week because I couldn't I couldn't do it anymore. I was exhausted. I couldn't move because I was, you know, my my family was in. My wife was a teacher, so she's teaching in Florida, taking care of my little guy. I'm in New York, staying at my mom's house. And I'm taking the subway in the middle of the winter myself, transporting myself back and forth to um to the hospital to Memorial. I'm going from Queens to Manhattan every day in the middle of winter on the subways and I'm all drugged up, you know, and I'm like falling asleep on the train and waking up ten exits later and like I'm going to the I'm going to the bathroom, sitting on the toilet in the public place and waking up two hours later. Oh my you know? God. Yeah. <clears throat> so I couldn't do it anymore. So actually what happened at that point was my daughter came up from North Carolina and um she my mom, my mom is old at this point. She couldn't really be like driving me back and forth to Manhattan every day. So like that was not, so I, that's why I decided and I'm a strong willed guy. So I decided to do it myself that I started not being able to do it. And then my daughter came up and she spent a week taking me back and forth to, to the treatments. And then it got to be too much. And I just got to go in the hospital because I actually got a little sick and they were worried about that because my immune system was like worn down to the nub and that's dangerous. So I think my white blood kill sound at that at that point was like seven. 
I think like, yeah. So I think a healthy range is somewhere like, I think when you talk about like your blood numbers, I think a healthy white blood cell sound is something like 80 to 100. I'm not really sure the numbers I forget off the top of my head. But like, I think like they say like 80 to 100 and mine was like seven. I remember that. I remember them telling me that number. So, um, so I was really down to like nothing. So I was worn down to the nub. And um, so then, you know, we moved back. I went back down to Florida after treatment and um, it was just about trying to recover. And it's hard to recover because like the, um, the radiation treatment is cumulative. So even though you're done, it doesn't stop working on you, you know? So like it's still, the radiation is still working on you for months after they stop giving it to you. So you're really just ill for a long time, mm. you know? So I actually didn't feel sick at all before I got diagnosed. I just found a lump on my tongue, you know? It was the treatment that made me feel like I was dying, you know? So, but I was lucky and fortunate to catch it early enough that they got it. So, um, <clears throat> At that point, though, I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. You know, living in Florida, everything changed at that point. I became a different human being at that point because I was alive and I was really thankful and happy to be alive. You know, so my perspective changed on everything. There was no more, you know, being an actor and trying to make it into business. There's a lot of sadness and frustration and anger. And you're projected out sometimes to people and places that don't deserve it. And like, that was all gone. That was all lost. You know, I was just, I just became a different, positive, happy just thankful human being. Every part of my existence became that. So I started trying to think about what I wanted to do. And <clears throat> so um, I wanted to acquire a life too. So um, so like I always like, I always loved the desert from being in LA and coming out and hanging out. <clears throat> Excuse me a second. So yeah, so like this, and I actually came to visit the desert like when I was down in Florida with a friend. I was working on another script with a friend when I was living down in Florida, which is this weird, trippy desert thing that we were trying to write. So I was like, we actually need to go spend some time out in the desert. So like he was, he still lived in LA. He was one of my best friends. And uh, so I came up from Florida and we actually came out to the desert and we're just driving around this Jeep and hanging out in the park, Joshua Tree, and going out to some other weird spots out in the desert and trying to put this thing together. So at that point, like, this is before the cancer treatment that that we that trip. But at that point, I really was like, well, you know, I could live in this place. This is pretty cool out here. You know, I I, I dig it. At this point in my life, I dig. You know, this, this this is appealing to me. You know, so fast forward past the cancer treatment now, and I'm thinking about where I want to go, and what I want to do, and like, you know, Florida is a cool place for me. I liked it. I like the beaches. I like the exotic environment with the animals and all that stuff. But like, just having a laid back, quiet approach to life. And I didn't know what I was going to do work-wise either. Like at that point when I moved to the desert, even though I still held semblance of making it as an actor, I thought it was done because I couldn't really speak well. You know, I was having speech problems. I had to go speech therapy for quite some time. I had this giant scar on my neck that gave me tremendous self-esteem issues, you know? Mm. And, um, you know, and I had um, what's called lymphedema. So like I was building up lymph fluid in my neck. So I had like this big turkey gobble yeah. on my chin, which I'm a vain creature. I'm an actor. So I'm a vain creature. Having this thing under my neck was uh, horrible to me. It was just that, you know, so I'm looking at myself in the mirror every day, even though I'm healthy and, um, and, I'm, and I'm thankful and I'm positive. Just I'm looking in the mirror, seeing a guy that I've never seen before. So that was damaging. You know, it was, um, you know, I was, I was a happy person, but I was like, I'm not, I'm done. You know, I have no acting career. This is over, you know? So I was trying to, I'm trying to figure out what else I could do. 
And I couldn't, I didn't really want to bartend anymore either at that point because like I was having trouble with my voice and like projecting at the time was hard. Like I could barely speak over a whisper and like, so like, I can't really bartend, you know, I can't act. What am I going to do? So once again, my wife was supportive. We moved out to the desert and like where, you know, the cost of living is a lot less out here than it would be in LA or even like in Palm Beach where we were living at the time or in New York. Um, while I tried to figure out what I was going to do with myself. And, um, so she took a teaching job out here and we were living out here. And then, um, while I was trying to figure out what I was going to do again, I started, I did take a bartending job at that place, Willie boys that we talked about earlier. And, um, you know, it's an old roadhouse and it's kind of a cool place. Have yeah. you seen it? It's closed down now, but it's this big giant Patrick Swayze roadhouse kind of a place. It was an awesome looking place. But I took a job as a day bartender there, which was fine by me because I wasn't looking for action. I was just trying to make a couple of dollars and get myself busy and not barely be. I didn't want to be in the big, heavy scene of like a bar scene, busy, busy, because I couldn't. I, don't, I didn't think I could handle it, and I probably couldn't. So working as a day bartender and just having like five or six people sitting at the bar that I can talk to and have personal stories with was fine by me, which is how we met. Yeah. And that was kind of a that was a cool thing that I was just able to like you guys sat and had some food and drank some beers and we were able to just sit there right over each other and talk. So like, I think we, you guys were probably there for a good hour, hour and a half, maybe even two hours. And we just, we just bullshitted for a while, which was great. And that was like, that was fine by me. Cause that's always been a big part of who I was too. I'm part of my joy in life. My hobbies is driving cross country and, um, just meeting new people and talking to people. And that's part of my acting thing too. It's just like, you know, I like to meet different people and characters and tell stories and hear their stories. And so that's, that's a big part of my fabric. So like what we did, that's like, that's, that's all I want to do. You know, that's, I just want to hang out with different new people and, and find out who they are and tell them who I am and find the connection. It's a good, um, it's a good town for that kind of thing. There's a lot, you know, a lot of people I think are attracted to the desert because, they do think a bit differently and, and no one's going to kind of bother them or mess with them. So you get a lot of unique people out there. Yeah. So there's definitely a, there's definitely a unique vibe out here and there's all sorts of different people out here. You know, and the country's gone through a wacky time here with a lot of stuff and I don't really get involved in all that stuff. Like, you know, it's kind of a funny, it's kind of a funny thing right now because my wife is a U, uh, an AP U.S. government economics teacher. Oh, okay. And, and I've kind of bowed out of all politics whatsoever, you know, so... We have some, you know, it's all friendly and uh, wink, wink, and we dig at each other a little bit, but I'm, I'm bad out of all of it. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I, 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 I can't waste it out of my energy on that stuff. And, you know, because there's just so much negativity around and I don't have any, I don't have any negative part of my existence anymore. I just, I just removed my all negativity out of my existence at this point in my life. So, you know, and I feel like it's hard to even talk about that stuff without volatility. So I just don't do it and I, and I don't, I don't prescribe to any of it and I'm just out. So I just kind of, I'm out here in the desert doing my uh, weird, wacky, creative stuff. And I'm, I just, I don't have to be a part of that and I, and, and I'm not. So, well, that story that you came, that you were seeking to write when you came to the desert, is that astral plane drifter that that's out now or? No, well, actually that's not how it happened at all. So we get into that now. That's kind of the interesting part. So like when I met you, I was still trying to figure out what I was going to do. So, um, and I wanted to get back into acting and I talked to a couple of my buddies who were, you know, professional actors, working actors, and they were pushing me. You got to do something. You got to do something. So at the time, like when I met you, I think I might've even mentioned it. I was just going to start a um, little YouTube show just to kind of, 
exercise some muscles. So I did this show on YouTube, which I called the out yonder with magic Mike. And I call myself magic Mike because, you know, I just got with cancer and had part of my tongue removed and I decided to start a talk show. So I thought that was kind of magical. Yeah. And you know, magic Mike is, a, is kind of, a, it's a name that's out there and you know, everybody knows it. And also it's the desert because all that magical mystical stuff. So I thought it was a great name. So I actually set up like a, you know, I set up a desk in the middle of the desert in the Joshua trees and I would interview people and I would do like little 15, 20 minute interviews of like, and I couldn't get, I didn't get like a lot of great guests. I did get some, um, but a lot of times, you know, as you know, with podcasts, sometimes you're just trying to get people. So sometimes it was my, one of my kids or my wife or the neighbor or, you know, so, you know, and you just, you know, but it was, I did it every week. And you know this, you just got to keep doing it no matter what. I mean, no matter if, if, if I didn't have a guest, I'd find something to do and put myself out there and do it. Yeah. So I did that for six months. <clears throat> Every week I put myself out. I would hustle all my gear out to the desert and set up my goofy desk and chairs and make a talk show out in the middle of the Joshua trees. And like I said, I think most, I mean, the longest one is probably about 20, 25 minutes. But I, I tried to keep about 15, 20 minutes because... It's dry out there and, you know, I have saliva issues from the cancer. So like I have to, you know, I have to keep myself hydrated. So, um, so I, I, but I really wanted to see what I could do. And like, I really, it helped me build my confidence and uh, say, Hey, you can do this. And like, you know, I saw, I saw, you know, that lymphedema that I was talking about, my neck disappeared at that point. And I started looking more like my old self and I kind of, uh, changed my appearance. I, you know, for years I looked more like a, uh, uh, a Tony Soprano type. And then like I moved out here and I grew up my hair. So I have longer hair and I have sideburns and a kind of a cheek mustache and soul patch. And like, I kind of totally changed my persona and, um, it works for me because I wound up getting a pretty good agent because I and then, uh, and then I started auditioning regularly and then I started booking acting gigs and like, so like, crazy thing that happened. I, I mean, I, I just threw myself back in there and then like, uh, I wound up having the most success that I've ever had, you know? So like I booked a few shows. I did it. So we sunny in Philadelphia. I did Superstore. Um, right before the pandemic, I did a new HBO show called made for love with Ray Romano and Krista Malati that still hasn't aired, you know? So wait for that to air. You know? So like, you know, things are going really, really well. You know, I was booking guest stars and co-stars on TV shows. And um, I remember the day because it was March 11th last year. I was supposed to go. I did a short film for AFI and they were having a premiere at the Directors Guild. And I think Made for Love was supposed to premiere not too many weeks after that. But they but they never finished production on it. So it got halted because the, the pandemic did. So that day, me and my wife got dressed to go to the Directors Guild Theater. The, for the premiere of the short film and uh, everything got shut down. Just like, Oh, nothing's happening. Canceled. So, um, so, uh, and then my, and then the show didn't air and then things just shut down. So like, all right, it was pretty frustrating because it was like, I just went through all this stuff and I yeah. got myself in a pocket where things are happening and now I got to stop, but I didn't get angry about it because I knew it wasn't just me. It was everybody, you know? So once again, this is my new mentality. Like the old me would have been frustrated and angry and projecting stuff out there and, you know, and, and just having a, a negative reaction to it all. And I didn't do that at all. And I'm also very lucky that we live in a pretty decent house out here and we have plenty of space. So like, you know, I know a lot of my friends who live in LA, they've been, you know, 
And even in New York, you, yeah. where you guys are, I mean, you guys are. Dude, you know, it, it, we're basically like two people in a little studio here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, you know, I spent like, you know, I spent the beginning of the pandemic, the first, because it was summertime, you know, March to, I'm out in my yard, you know, so I jump, I go in the pool and I clean the yard, you know, I'm out, in the, I'm, I just, you know, I spent the whole summer lounging in the pool, listening to Dean Martin music, you know, doing that whole <laughs> Palm Springs thing up here in Joshua Tree, you know, so I made the best of it, you know, and like, we actually, you know, drove around the country, even though we, everything was closed, we went to a lot of national parks. Nice. So we actually spent a couple of weeks driving through the Dakotas and Montana, Wyoming, places that are naturally socially distanced, you know. You know, so, so I, I found the positive way to get through the pandemic through that. And then like after the summer, right around September, it seemed like the business was going to open again and things started happening. And uh, I started, all of a sudden I started getting auditions again and I actually booked a small part on uh, Dwayne Johnson's new show, Young Rock. And then, oh. and then the scene got cut. So that got canceled. And then I got pinned on a couple of shows. What pinned means is like when you audition, you know, I guess, you know, maybe they submit like 500 people to a part. Maybe they audition 50. And then if you get pinned, that means you're like the top one, two, or three that they're considering the last consideration. So I actually got to think I got pinned by three times in the week right after the, the Young Rock thing that fell through. But I didn't get any of those parts. Mm. Which, you know, in the business, they tell you if you get pinned, it's a win, you know. The casting director likes you. You did your job the right way, but whatever happened with the producers and it's a look thing probably more than anything else. One person's look more you know, appealing to them at that point for what they were looking for than anything else. So you did nothing wrong. You did the job. You won the day. It just didn't happen. So like, so, so you can hang your hat on the positives, but there's still a real level of frustration with that. Yeah, of course. So, um, but I was like, all right, things are going good. And then things kind of shut down again, like right around, October, like they thought things were opening and then things stopped happening. So then like all this stuff was happening and then I had like a month of inactivity and um, I was bouncing off the walls at this point because I was ready to do something. So um, we're talking about right around Halloween, right? Um, I call a friend of mine, the guy that I mentioned that I was working on the other thing in the desert. And his name's Jason. I was like, hey, Jay, you want to uh, you want to do something weird in the desert? He's like, yeah, let's do something weird in the desert. So I was like, all right, uh, I, I have some ideas. Uh, you know, I, I think I want to try and do a short film, you know, and we'll try and put together as minimalist as possible, you know, because we're not going to really be able to get a lot of people into that. So we started talking about the idea and I started getting more and more jazzed about the idea. And I had a lot of strong ideas about what I wanted to do. And he wasn't really feeling that direction of what I wanted to do. So he was like, hey, you love this idea it's great for you. You, you, you do your thing, you know? So he goes, so you just keep developing what you developing and, um, and you do it. And that actually happened over a couple of days, right? Right around Halloween. Right. So that like, we've had a bunch of conversations over like a day or two. And then you know, I, you know, it all kind of just popped in my head real quick, you know? So, um, so I actually decided to write a script, a short film script, um, November 2nd. And then by number November 4th, the script was done. So, and it's a short script. Oh, you know, yeah. I wrote the script, the idea with fully formed was there in two days. So, um, I started calling friends that I knew in LA trying to think about how I could put this thing together. So, um, the, the main thing was like, I felt like I had a fully realized idea. I really just needed to find somebody with a camera 
you know, that can film this thing for me. So I started calling around and, um, and, uh, I actually reached out to a friend of mine who I mentioned La La Land earlier. He was the director of photography on La La Land and I haven't spoken to him in years. And at this point he is a technology developer for the Academy of Motion Pictures and Sciences. So his name is Joe DiGiolero and he's, uh, you know, and he's got a big job. And I was a little intimidated by calling him because he's got this big job. And I was like, I should call Joe. He knows a lot of guys. And, um, you know, so I actually, I actually emailed Joe and I said, Hey Joe, I got this idea and you know, everybody and you, you know, can you read the script and, um, and, and tell me if you know somebody who has a camera who you think might be interested in this. So I sent him the email and then an hour later he calls me and we haven't spoken to each other in years. And, um, he's laughing hysterical on, on the other end of the phone as I say hello. And, um, he's like, Mike, are you kidding me? This is great. I want to fucking do this thing, which I'm shooting it, which was like mind blowing to me, you know? So I was just like, fantastic. So like, he's like, let me call you back in like an hour. So like, he calls me back in an hour and you know, he's put already put together like the camera package. We got a you know, shot on a red Epic camera, which is one of the best cameras on the market. And like all this stuff is coming together. And, um, you know, I found a couple of actors like, so what I'll say about the, about what I'll, what I'll say about it is that it's, um, minimalist in the amount of people involved, but it's grand in scope, which is the way he purposely wrote that way down here. So, um, it's called Astral Plane Drifter. And um, we, so I put this together like within a week. So like I wrote it from November 2nd to the 4th by like the 11th, it was put together. I had my, I had my director of photography. I actually used my family who were in the house quarantining with me, my wife and my kids. We decided to use them as crew. I, had, I got two other actors for three other parts with myself and we all got tested and we all formed a bubble in quarantine in my house out here in the desert. And, um, so we did pre-production. Like they didn't come out right away. So we had pre-production. Me and Joe were on the phone and on the on the computer for a couple of weeks, and um, you know, and then we did actually. A I had the location. I already picked it up, but we went out and did pre-production out the locations. So we went out in separate cars and drove around and talked through the windows of the cars through our masks as we went from location to location, and we and we and we and we set up our shot list like that. And um, so now we're talking December first second and third we shot the thing over three days out here in the desert and then um we did pre-production remotely you know we um i found an editor out here here's a you know, so there's this guy who lives in joshua so i i think i might talk to you there's a guy out here who runs a, a film society like he's got a desert film society he built a movie theater in the backyard of his of his desert house oh sweet and, um and he has a little film society where he shows classic movies. So I met him right away when I moved out here and we became really good friends. And, um, and, um, so he introduced me to, and we, I already met him once before. He introduced me to this guy who, um, is an award-winning documentary filmmaker and actually got his start doing pre-visualization editing for Disney. And so, um, so he's retired at this point. He lives out here in the desert. He was actually like a guy from like San Diego who was like, you know, he did a lot of documentaries on the ocean and sea turtles and, you know, oceanography and stuff like that. And he liked to come out to the desert and hike. And, um, he just got fell in love with the desert as well. So he retired and moved out here. So, um, I went to him. I actually went to him first and I talked to him and he was like, yeah, I'll do all the editing. You know? So, 
So that was great. So he edited. So I got all, you know, so that was awesome that I got these great professional people that like are, you know, for this short film, you know, and, um, so me, Joe, and his name is Michael Collin. And, uh, so me, Joe, and Michael Collin, we worked remotely for about a month doing editing post-production on, 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 on the short. So we finished editing on January 5th. So we had to finish product on January 5th. And, um, I started submitting to film festivals on January 7th. I took a day to ingest it, make sure it looked right. <laughs> and then I started submitting it to film festivals. And here we are with today, February 20th. So I started submitting film festivals January 7th. We've been accepted to five film festivals. Um, that's amazing. We play. Yeah. We've won one. There was one, um, based up in, um, San Francisco that was going to have a live event, but they did an online event and they're right in the shadows of Netflix. They're in Netflix country and it's called Imagine Rain uh, Film Awards. And, uh, we won that festival, um, best short. And, um, what they said, their quote is definitely a cult classic waiting to happen. So, um, can you give a, like a, a little synopsis about what it's about? Yeah. So I don't really want to give too much. Okay. Away. If you go to like, uh, so what I'll say though, this is how much I will say. And I think this is fun because like, I think this will give everybody an idea what it is. It's a, uh, I'll give you the genre that it is. It's a sci-fi Western Kung Fu comedy. Whoa. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. So that should tell you a lot. So there's so many um, reveals in there that I don't want to give away. I have a little teaser up on my Instagram and up on my IMDb page. And like, so if you want to see it, I have like a 20 second teaser up, but there's so many things to the thing, um, that I want a fully realized experience when you see it. Um, that'd be great. If everybody wants to see it, they could see it next weekend. Um, we just got accepted to the Manhattan beach film festival. It's called Florana F L O R A N A F L O R A N N A Florana film festival, Manhattan beach. And, um, it's a new film festival. There's a EDM group called Florana that's like behind it. And then, um, that there was going to be, it was going to be a mixed, it was going to be a mixed film festival, outdoor film festival with music, with like with concerts and, and independent films that obviously we're still in the pandemic. So that's not happening. So they canceled the, they canceled the music end of it, but they're still doing a drive-in live event for the film festival down in Manhattan beach. And they're also live streaming it. So you can live stream the event. So we're playing, it's next weekend, February 26th and 27th. And National Playing Drifter is playing both nights. So you, so you can actually stream the short film next weekend if, you, if anybody's interested in doing that. So it's going to be a pretty cool event for us. Um, they got some pretty big time judges on the thing. Vince Vaughn is a judge for this. And then um, there's a partner from William Morris Endeavor that's a judge and some management companies and, and some producers. And they have a lot of, Hollywood elite that's uh, judging this thing. So it's a pretty good opportunity for us. So to think that November 1st, I had an inkling of an idea. November 4th, I wrote this film and here we are three months later and it's done. And I've already won the festival and uh, Vince Vaughn is going to be watching it this weekend. It's pretty crazy to think about. Yeah, dude, I'm happy for you. Um, yeah. It, I'm going to, everyone listening knows that whatever app they're listening to this in, I'll have a direct link to check out exactly what you were talking about. It's not something where they would vote on it or anything, right? Because you said there's judges. Oh, no, judging. they can vote on it. There's going to be – so there's a judging component, okay. which the judges are, and then there's also an audience award. Oh, cool, so, cool. 
So I highly recommend everybody listening to this to vote for me for Astro Plane Drifter. Yeah, so, hell yeah, man. Could win a, so that would be awesome. So yeah, there is an audience award. And we're playing both nights. So um, if you're free, either Friday, I think it's um, 5 p.m. to 10 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. So that on the East Coast there, we'd start at 8 o'clock on Friday, Saturday night, which, you know, everybody's in their house just hanging out, binge watching stuff anyway. So I know we're getting a little late by the end of the thing, but that's what everybody's doing these days anyway. So. Yeah, um, I'm definitely going to also recommend everybody do that. Very easy to just follow the link in whatever your player that you're listening in, and that'll take you directly there. Um, dude, yeah. Yeah, the, the tickets on Eventbrite, you know, so like, you know, I think it's $10 to live stream, you know, so it's not a big cost. So, um, you know, and it's a five hour, and I think there is going to be, mu- I mean, they're going to be playing music. There's not going to be any, uh, they, I, you know, they're scrambling to try and get it all right because of all their protocols. You know, there's all, you know, and it's going to be a cool event, and there's going to be lots of films shown. So I think there's going to be 30 short films shown. So there's a lot of content. So it's definitely worth $10, you know, to, to see this. You're going to see a lot of cool stuff. You know, I think my thing has a really good chance. I think it's really good. and uh, But I'm sure there's going to be a lot of other great films there as well. So it'd be a fun way to see some new stuff. I don't quite know how, um, like, this sort of submission process works, but... If this starts getting picked up by more festivals, is there ever like a chance that there's something bigger? Because I know that there's obviously the shorts awards for the for the Oscars and stuff like that. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, there's chances of other stuff. I mean, they can like the idea. I'm actually working on a script right now. So I'm working on an idea based off of this short script. Cool. I guess it would kind of be kind of a prequel idea to the script. So um, is what I'm working on right now. So I'm about a third of the way through a first draft right now. So I've been writing. So like I said, I've, I've been pretty busy here. I've been hustling with this thing like every day um, between writing it and then pre-production and filming it and then post-production and submitting it and getting it to festivals. I've actually been writing as well. So I finished post-production on this thing January, like I said, January 5th, and I've started writing. So I'm about 35 pages into a first draft right now in, in a month. So um so I have the I have the idea in my head. I have a I have a beat sheet what I want to do with it. I have a framework, but it's, you know, so I'm just trying to put it all together and get all the, you know get all the bits and pieces in there. Which you know I feel like it's going to be it'll be it'll be a fun thing once I get it done. So the hope is you know they like the uh, they like the short film idea, and then uh, maybe somebody would be interested in producing the uh, fully realized uh, feature script. Yeah. That's the hope. So I'm planning on getting it out there a lot. I plan on coming to New York. I've submitted to um, I've submitted to several festivals in New York. So I mean, the, the submission process just started. So I haven't heard back. I mean, I've only heard back. Well, here's the cool thing. So I've submitted to a lot of festivals, and um, so far we've only heard back from five festivals, and we've been accepted to all five festivals. Nice. So they yeah. So they say that a good acceptance rate, you know, you, you go on the proverbial they, you go on websites and you, you Google, like, what's a good acceptance rate for a submission to a film festival? So all the articles that you read tell you that like around 13% is a good acceptance rate to film festivals. I'm at 100%. 100. <laughs> awesome, so, man. Yeah, so uh, we're doing pretty good. So I have to, I, w- I won't name festivals because I won't name them until we actually get accepted to them. So, uh, but I have submitted to several New York film festivals and we'll see what happens, you know? So some of that is, you know, some of that is uh timing. Some of that is, you know, you know, what they, what, you know, 
what they want, you know, I'm trying to find the pockets of festivals that it fits into narratively, you know, there's like, so, so like I mentioned that it won an award and they said that it's a cult classic waiting to happen. So I'm trying to find uh, festivals that appreciate that kind of stuff, you know? So, and I've already told you what it is. So like, uh, you know, genre wise. So, so I'm trying to find places where it could be in a fun environment that we can go. And I'm going to come, I'm, I, I fully plan because it's what I do. I like to, I drive the country for fun. So I've, I've, I've submitted this thing in all different parts of the country and I fully plan on being in my car and driving around the country and showing this thing and, and meeting with people and showing and hopefully being Q and A's and meet new people and talk about it. And really looking forward to doing that. So I hope all that uh, happens. And, uh, I have a pretty good sense at this point now. We have a pretty decent sampling that we're going to make a few more festivals along the way here. That's awesome. Well, hopefully then maybe a year from now we'll we'll do part two and you'll have that that full feature length one all wrapped up. That'll be cool. Yeah. So yeah, with the but so like we I mean we we stay in touch. You know, we Facebook and Instagram and they, so I, I we we touch base from time to time. So I will definitely keep you updated and I'll be posting all sorts of updates on my. On my Instagrams and my Facebook, so if anybody wants to, you know, you you know, follow me or or friend me on Facebook, you know, uh, you know, I have a public Facebook account. I just put, you know, anybody can friend me and I'll friend them back or follow me, I'll follow them back. So, so yeah, follow along, you know, join the party, and uh, you know, and and, and I'll, I'll constantly be updating on this thing. And I think you know, I think we're in for a pretty fun ride on this thing for the next year. So I'm looking forward to it. Cool. Thanks, man. Um, it was really cool to reconnect with you. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And happy to, uh, to talk about this and to, to help promote it a bit. So thanks, man. Thanks. I really appreciate the time. It's good talking to you too, man. And I'll talk to you again real soon. Hey, everybody. That is a wrap on 208 for the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. Thanks, Mike. This was really cool to reconnect with you. Uh, everyone out there, I hope you enjoyed this story and this conversation. Make sure you check out Astral Plane Drifter. Vote it up. Give Mike some love. Give him a follow on social media. All that stuff. I think in a year from now, we're going to be hearing more of his name. And I hope that we get to see that feature-length film as well. Thank you, folks. Voyagers, as always, please, please, please take care of each other. And I will catch you very very soon. Peace.